but the reality is not telling us much about the nature of humans, starting with the designer first, because he's the first customer of the design artifact. He must be the first customer. That bond should exist between him and the output of that design process. And I don't see that happening, you know, because as I said, there is a commercial agenda behind it. It's as if here we're not interested in the human dimension, here we're interested in the transaction. We're not interested in the interaction, right? Or some sort of a transformation that it can generate for the designer or for the user. We are interested in the transaction, which is the objective of what we're doing. Hi, I am Arash Golnam, and you're listening to God Talks, double G U double T. Hi, everyone. Maria here, and welcome to season two of God Talks, double G U double T, a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design, and gut feelings. I'm Maria, designer, strategist, and venture builder running GUT, WGUWT, a design and innovation hub. I decided to launch GUT Talks as the pandemic hit with an ambition to educate, put some karma on the board, and feature entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and investors who deserve recognition and have inspiring stories to tell. Feel free to email me if you need me. Maria at God.com, W-G-U-W-T, or check the links in the show notes. If you haven't noticed, there are no sponsors for the show, but you can still support God Talks, and it's super easy. Just leave a five-star review and a comment, and follow our social media channels on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, and the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get started. Our guest today is Arash Golnam, PhD in Management of Technology, Masters in Systems Dynamics, and he teaches in multiple universities and has his own practice as a psychoanalyst. And I remember last time we spoke, you were almost at the end of the process, right? And he offers training services at Design Dissolve for individuals and organizations. He's working at the intersection between design, systems thinking, and psychoanalytics. So I just want to give a big shout out to Samuel Simon, who actually connected me with Arash on LinkedIn by commenting on one of the episodes that was with Adam Lawrence. So thank you so much, Samuel, for this introduction. And I can't wait to jump in. So Arash, thank you so much for being on Gut Talks. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. And I also thank Sam for putting in contact with you. Cool. So let's kick this off. I know I will have so many questions for you and so on. So who's Arash? Arash is a learner, is an enthusiast about human beings. And it's someone who is a connector, is a map maker. I would like to map different things from things that are scientific to dimensions in the psyche, to mythology, to everyday life behavior. I want to go below the surface of things. This is who Arash is. So what inspires you? Well, actually, I think we cannot say something is inspiring or not. It's up to us to find inspiration in our surrounding, you know? For me, the individual should be the source of inspiration for himself by looking at different things and by not 
walking away from them until he finds some sort of a deeper meaning. Because for me, what we encounter on the everyday life situations is not something that is random. It's guided by something. So we need to stay with those events, with those encounters, and somehow reflect on them until we find something which has a level of depth that somehow inspires us. So can I ask you just to go back a little bit and let's reflect a little bit on your journey. So you're originally from Iran and then you moved to Switzerland and you're deeply interested in the human being, right? From my understanding from you. So what's your journey about? How did you get to where you are today? How did you get started? I was an engineer by training. So I'm an industrial engineer and I had an interest in basically academia. That's why I chose to do a doctoral dissertation. So in 2008, I came to Switzerland on a scholarship from Ecole Polytechnique Federal de Lausanne, which is the Swiss Institute of Technology in Lausanne, the Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne. So I did a doctoral research about systems thinking, which was one of my, let's say, fields that I was really passionate about. And basically, systems thinking is a discipline in which you try to connect other disciplines. So it's a transdiscipline, basically. You want to find patterns of connection between different disciplines. So my journey in systems thinking resulted in me doing some research as a doctoral researcher with systems thinking. And then after my PhD, I started working as system dynamics. System dynamics is the mathematical, let's say, counterpart to systems thinking, is a part of systems thinking as a paradigm that somehow includes mathematical theories. So it's a field of simulation and modeling. So I started working as a systems modeler or a system dynamicist. But after a few years of working, I also had to do a second master's degree in order to deepen my understanding of the mathematical side of systems thinking, because I was more into the qualitative side I need, needed to develop that quantitative side as well. But then I, I realized that there are important dimensions of human activity systems that cannot be rendered mathematically or algorithmically. You know, we were working on a city simulator for the city of London, and I realized that there are important dimensions of a city that we cannot mathematically model. For instance, how cool is a city is, how safe it is. These are really attributes that are super important and at the same time, you cannot reduce them into a set of mathematical equations. So that was some sort of a rude awakening for me. I realized that there are many important dimensions in life that we cannot treat with a scientific attitude. We need to have a different attitude in order to inquire into those dimensions. And this took me somehow back to my childhood. Because growing up, I was exposed to Persian poetry and mythology and literature in general. And there is a very strong symbolic dimension present in Persian literature. Symbol is basically something that connects you to the unknown. It's the crossover between eternity and now. So something that gives you a glimpse of those eternal, let's say, dimensions that exist in parallel with this temporal or a spatial one where we live. So I somehow connected, it took me back on a regression into my childhood. I started reading mythology again, the stories I grew up with, 
you know. And through that activity, I get to know a comparative mythologist who is very well known called Joseph Campbell. And through the work of Joseph Campbell, especially his monomyth theory, I got to know Carl Gustav Jung. Joseph Campbell was following Jung, basically, his thinking a lot. And then that was an opening into, let's say, a secret garden for me. You know, it brought about an immense change into my life. I started poking more into Jung, doing some reading. And then one day I went to the Jung Institute. Being in Switzerland, I was lucky I could just hop on a train and go to Zurich and to Jung Institute in Kusnach near Zurich. So I spent a day there following some courses and just time stopped when I was sitting there, hearing those conversations, being there itself. It was very alchemical. And it was very clear to me that I need to pursue this line. So four years into the future, now I am still pursuing that. This past summer, I started my practice as a psychoanalyst. And it's not only about practicing it, which is important for me. The, the point about this dimension is that it permeates other activities in life. You know, my teaching is different. My consulting activities are different. My, the way I approach life is different you know, in general. So it has changed me in a, in a fundamental way. And, you know, this divide between personal, professional, you know, we, we always say, okay, this is personal development, that is professional development, in my opinion, is a false divide. Any development, if it's fundamental, both manifests on a personal and on a professional level. And my encounter with the inner world, as I can say, resulted in transformations both on personal and the professional level. I like the way you presented all of this. So can you tell me more also what got you to embark on a four-year-long journey after, you know, doing your two masters and your PhD and working and then going back? I mean, I know you said you're a continuous learner, you're also an educator, and you don't see this obviously as disconnected they're just linked to each other right so you learn while educating and so on what pushed you to do that because it's quite an intense journey as well right yeah it's definitely intense the beginning of the journey for me was more like an initiation into a different attitude you know towards life because as scientists or engineers we learn a lot about the outer world the world out there right the phenomena the machines the technology algorithms, and so on and so forth, blockchain, we are all these things that come and go. But there is not enough knowledge about the inner world, the world that was there before even we come to existence as individuals, the world that we embody somehow within us. So for me, this was a nice complement to what I had explored previously in one way, because it was somehow creating a sense of equilibrium, inner plus outer world. You open up a new dimension. At the same time, it was somehow very relevant to my, let's say, passion for systems thinking. Because as I said, systems thinking is not a discipline on its own, it's a transdiscipline. I would also say systems thinking is an attitude towards life as well, that embraces complexity, interrelationships, and uncertainty. That's more broadly put, and especially the part that deals with interrelationships, you know, in psychoanalysis, it's a way of looking at phenomena in an interrelated way, 
And these phenomena are not only interrelated in the outer world, it's basically exploring all the possible relationships between the inner phenomena within us and the outer phenomena. Sometimes what we experience in the outer world is simply somehow a permutation of an inner reality that we face there. So this shift in perspective and this ability to find meaning in the most trivial things in life, right? Right now I watch a movie. The way I watch the movie, the way I interpret the movie is very different. I've been given a new lens, a new instrument through which I can look at my surrounding and look at myself. So it enables me to develop rich readings of whatever that happens within me and happens in the outer world without me. So I would say I don't see it very much because many people ask me why. I have been enrolled in a program at university right now for the past 21 years. So since I started my higher education journey, I've always been enrolled in a program. I've always been doing some sort of studies. And Mm -hmm. for me, this is why we're here. We are here to learn. We're here to grow. We are here to develop our perspective about life, about ourselves. And through this, as a byproduct, we hopefully can inspire others to do the same. So for me, it's a continuation of a spectrum of ideas that I've been following. And it's very complementary to basically what I knew as an engineer. Now that I'm looking at the inner world, the way I am looking at it, the precision and accuracy that I demand in my observations, the consistency, the coherence, you know, is different from someone who has not been trained as an engineer or as a scientist. So my way of looking, so all my studies are still very relevant. They add up to something. They amount to basically this composite lens that right now I have. So I don't see it at all as a tangential addition to what I was doing before. I see it as a meaningful continuation. I'm just going to stop here. 21 years enrolled in the university. You need to have a statue there soon. The longest ever. <laughs> Consider that one. It's still going on. So let me ask you this, because we're talking about that I think it fits in quite well. What do you think, but also what's your attitude about gut feelings, assumptions, instincts? Um, so in psychoanalysis, we call gut feelings intuition, basically. So if you look at four different functions that we have that are available to our psyche, we have thinking, we have sensation, we have feeling, and we have intuition. So intuition is one of the four. Two of these functions help us gather data or information, which is through our senses. We can read something, see something, smell it, touch it, some evidence about it, right? Or you can gather information about things through your intuition. Intuition is knowing about something without knowing how you do, basically. So with something that is mystical, you enter a mystical realm when you talk about intuition. Then once we gather information, we can use our thinking or our value system, our feelings to basically judge it, appraise it, assess it. And I would say right now, where we are in the world, in terms of educational system that we have, in terms of the way what is being valued in businesses and companies is more biased towards sensation and thinking. We have somehow neglected or ignored the feeling side and the intuition side, which is 
essential. Anything that is basically can be expressed in terms of a formula or in terms of, let's say, an algorithm, there is no feeling or intuition in it. So all the jobs that will be somehow done by the algorithms or AI, as people will talk about it, are the type of things that are dealing with different types of thinking and different types of sensation, which is measurements, evidence gathering, anything which is feeling-based, intuition-based, will stay exclusively as something which is human. This is what I think. But at the same time, what we try to develop is more on the thinking side and on the sensation side. So we are somehow putting ourselves in a competition with the machines in areas in which at some point, or if not already, they will excel, right? And they will win over us, they will overtake us. So for me, intuitions are the purest form of insight you can have. When you receive an intuitive insight, it means it's not through your thought process, through overanalyzing, overthinking stuff. Somehow something comes to you and speaks to you at a level that influences not only your mind, but also your body. You know, our body, our body responds to intuitive insights faster than our brain. So the intelligence we have, which is not intellectual necessarily, is the entity within us that somehow acknowledges and values intuition. So it's some sort of an intelligence, which is not intellectual. We have to make this differentiation between intellect and intelligence. They're not synonyms. In intellect is one form of basically intelligence. There are other forms of intelligence. I would say the highest form of intelligence we can possibly imagine is intuition. So this is my take on intuition. My intuitive side is my guide. And you know, the moment I came to contact with way the, the opening or the gateway to the inner world, I, something deep inside me was convinced that I need to pursue this. I didn't need to sit down at a desk and do cost-benefit analysis, do calculations to see how much it's going to cost me over years to do this study, how much of deviation will happen. I just I had to do it. And that was it. So in a fraction of a second, I had a decision without even going through a decision-making process, right? Bang. It was clear to me. And whenever I have followed this, let's say, intuitive insights, which are different from instincts, I would say. Intuitions are much more refined ways of connecting to the, let's say, our deeper self than instincts. Because instincts are more at the impulse level, right? The instinct that we have, for instance, the fight or flight type of stuff, you know? The instinct to, for instance, eat, to procreate. These are some sort of in instinctual things that we have in common also with basically with animals as well. They also are instinctive, purely instinctive. So intuition, there's this sentence that I don't remember where from. I read that the spider that creates that beautiful and intricate web, you know, it's, it's really interesting how it's built. And a human architect who generates something or an artist who generates an artifact, there's a difference between humans can imagine the end result before building it. So we have this imagination. There is some sort of a meaning of what we are doing for us that brings about this imagination. But a spider does not do that. It just builds it out of instinct, right? So the baby spider comes 
and then can start doing exact same thing is in, embedded inside them as an instinctive way of responding to life. But for us, intuition is of a higher level. It deals with not only reflexes and impulses, but also meaning. It seeks some, some sort of a higher meaning. Another example is eating, as I said, is an instinct, right? You can deal with eating at an instinctual level, just eating. You can take it to a higher level, make it a, some sort of a community of people gathering together, some opportunity for bonding, a dinner or breaking bread, which creates a bond, a powerful and important bond amongst people. It takes the instinctual part, it's probably still there, but there's a culture that is added to it. It's nature plus culture. And then there is a whole new level of that, which is very spiritual, which is fasting. By stopping to eat the outer world food, you nourish your soul with the inner world food. So that is more like some sort of a, if someone is convinced that they have to fast, this doesn't come out of an instinctual urge because the instinct drives us towards eating, but the intuition or connection to those higher spiritual ways of making sense of the world, they may push us towards fasting, which is basically not eating, but at the same time nourishing our soul. I don't know how we're going to do this, not to speak for the next 24 hours of this podcast. So I will try so hard to limit that one to some of the, I'm going to call essentials, which is really like random essential. Otherwise, we will never finish. Yeah. So because your brain is going into so many different directions and I'm just trying to highlight, okay, what I want us to focus now, because you're saying the way you're that. presenting everything is no, no, the way you're presenting it. Actually, that's the longest answer I had for this question about, you know, gut feelings and so on. But one thing is I started this podcast besides the fact that there was the pandemic and I wanted to reconnect with people I met initially. And because I had a really, really bad kind of customer experience, that was the push. But the initial reason was, it's like, I'm going to do it. You know, going to start a podcast. It just came like that. And I named my business Gut as well with a W-U-T. <laughs> okay, because I believe that when I started, I'm not going to say following completely my gut, but actually doing it and not just ignoring it and not wanting to kind of see what's happening or, or what I'm feeling or sensing, things changed for me. I could feel the difference in my life, even in, in basic things. This is why I also encourage people not to be really limited to some constraints by the society or what they see or what they think, you know, someone would say or feel or think, just, you know, just do it as long as you're not harming anyone. So I really appreciate the way you frame that one. So thank you for that. And another one, you were talking about AI, right? What's your thoughts on emotional AI? Well, I have very, let's say, pointy opinions about AI and this massive adaptation of algorithms and IT tools in our lives. So there's areas in which AI or AI technology could be very useful. No doubt about it. You know, it could somehow reduce some of the burdensome, repetitive tasks human beings are not needed to do anymore. That is basically great. But when it comes to emotions, let's talk about the word emotion first, because we have to understand what we're talking about. These words may bring up different things in different people, right? Talk about God feeling, people may have different interpretations of that. So I would first start with emotions to see whether 
we can have emotional AI or not at all. We should first understand what emotions are. Basically, emotions are responses from our unconscious to circumstances that we face, okay? Our unconscious doesn't have a conceptual language like we do. We use concepts, right? We use words to talk about. But the language of the unconscious is energy and images. That's the language that it speaks. Now, an emotion is a response, is an automatic response from our unconscious to a situation which may be consonant or dissonant to that unconscious force. So it could be to reinforce it or to counteract it. So this is basically what an emotion is. Feelings, on the other hand, are basically our conscious ability to establish a relationship with emotion. Okay? So when you take an emotion, when you take an impulse like that, and you want to consciously relate to it and understand it, you know, because once emotions come, they kick us out of our own homes, okay? We are possessed by an emotion. This is basically what in the past people said, this guy is possessed. This possession, right, is not by evil spirits. It's basically by some forces within us that do not have a language of their own. And they speak through upsurge of emotions and bodily symptoms that we manifest. So now if you put the word emotion with AI, for me, it won't work because there is something artificial about it, that intelligence, as the name suggests. Whereas emotions are coming from unconscious. That is natural. Our unconscious world is a natural. Our psyche is a natural phenomenon, right? These are properties of this natural world that we have, that we are living, right? The same is with intuition. That is also a property that is mystical. It's something about it that is not algorithmically renderable, like I said. So emotions and AI put together, I don't understand. What, how can this be a reality? Well, AI makes me a bit emotional because it somehow triggers me from somewhere. So that is the only part I can relate to because it somehow brings out some emotions within me whenever I, I hear something like that. So I would say the part that AI could do is more, like I said, it's some specific ways of thinking, not all the thinking either, right? The thinking that is analytical, the thinking that is processing-based, right? It's not even the type of thinking that is somehow looking for construction of a bigger image. Holistic thinking or systems thinking or systemic thinking is not something that AI could do. It's very good with specific types of thinking. At the same time, specific ways of gathering data or data points. This to me is what it can do, right? We cannot even expect any type of predictions coming out of an AI about how things are gonna evolve. How, what's gonna happen with COVID? Was it something predictable when it came, when it hit us? Did we predict all these different areas in our lives to be touched by that? All these social or let's say socioeconomical trends that happened around the world, the big ones, those ones that really result in big impacts, they are mainly not predictable. So it just shows us that even with all the technology that we have, we're not able, weather conditions cannot count on an accurate representation or a prediction of weather, even for the next 24 hours. So there is some certain type of complexity around us that cannot be reduced to uncertainty or simplicity 
through application of algorithms. Ad break. No, not an ad. But as you may have noticed, this show has no sponsors. But you can still support Gut Talks by leaving five stars or a comment on your podcast player. And like, share, and follow the social media channels of Gut. W-G-U-T-T. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get going. Okay. Uh, the reason why I ask is because you touched on AI and I had, I know there are a few startups working in the field of emotional artificial intelligence. And again, it depends on also how it's done because usually I try also to have to go beyond the buzzwords because it can also be a buzzword, right? And it's really to understand how are you doing it, not just saying it. And even today, there was an article that I read yesterday because I have this series in Italian when we talk about what's happening. And there's this article on Bloomberg where there's kind of a shift where ESG integrated or something like that would no longer be if you want, applicable, because it doesn't mean anything. (laughs) So this is why I'm just saying in terms of buzzwords at artificial intelligence and so on. But there's one that I explored. I'm I'm not an expert in artificial intelligence or anything like that, but it's called Project M. And they say that their technology really outs all the big ones, you know, the big, big, large organizations that are doing that. But again, I totally agree with you. Like on the weather side, for example, when it says here it's raining, it's sunny. So (laughs) that's what happens in Milan all the time. But one thing for sure, I uh, posted a very short video on YouTube about a month ago, literally. That was what the video was about. What is artificial intelligence? Artificial intelligence is not intelligence. It's artificial And this thing got like 11,000 views. I don't know how, but it seems to be a word that YouTube likes somehow, artificial intelligence and less from blockchain from, you know, what I try to do on that sense. But it's a tough word and I don't want us to get into artificial intelligence or emotional AI or predictive analytics and so on. It's not kind of the, the topic. It's just, I felt it was interesting in the way you were talking about things. And I think, yeah, as human beings, we're very complex as uh, creatures as well to be able to stick an algorithm to understand how we function. Because there are things anyway, like I would understand, you would understand, but go somewhere else in the world, it wouldn't be understood. It's, It's so different. And that's, I think, the beauty of it also. Let's touch a little bit on... I'm going to go back into the design field and talk about user research. And you mentioned that we kind of understand less the inner the inside the inner self then and we understand more the outside that what comes to us and so on what's your views on you know service design design thinking you know user research and all of that well you know again i have my opinions about what's happening in the field what i would say is that let's look at how human beings are tempted to be understood in this field because there's also a field called human-centered design okay yeah 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 absolutely And when you look, when you go to the field, you say, okay, how are humans attempted here to be understood? And you see on the customer side, we have the customer personas. A customer persona is, in my opinion, is a petty commercial agenda. There is no genuine interest in understanding the person behind the persona or the personality behind the persona. It's basically the outer crust. It's basically what this person does for a living his job how old he is so 
it's basically the outer layer of personality that we construct, that we put in place consciously to adapt to outer world situations. And as we go from one situation to another situation, we need to change this mask, let's say layer that we add. So the word persona is basically borrowed from Latin, which was a mask worn by an actor in theater during a play, right? So now imagine how much can you know about the person, not the actor, through the mask that that person is putting on? Not much. So here is one thing. The other thing is that who is the other human being involved in the design process? The designer. We don't even care about understanding the designer. No one talks about it. No one talks about constructing designer personas, understanding who the designer is, whether the design idea is compatible with the disposition of the designer, whether that is what he needs to do. This is the design artifact he needs to create, whether he is a designer or a problem solver only. So I would say we haven't even scratched the surface of human being when it comes to fields like design thinking or service design or human-centered design. The world is there, but the reality is not telling us much about the nature of humans, starting with the designer first, because he's the first customer of the design artifact. He must be the first customer. That bond should exist between him and the output of that design process. And I don't see that happening, you know, because as I said, there is a commercial agenda behind it. It's as if here we're not interested in the human dimension. Here we're interested in the transaction. We're not interested in the interaction, right? Or some sort of a transformation that it can generate for the designer or for the user. We are interested in the transaction, which is the objective of what we're doing. You know, that's sale that should happen, act of sales or some sort of a conversion of a potential user to a user. This is what matters because at the end of the day, this is what is linked to a KPI for us in the organization where we work. This is somehow a unit of measure that is tied to the livelihood of that organization, which is going to be somehow measured, this performance is going to be measured based on these metrics. I have a question here. Is that how you came up with the name Design Dissolve? Yeah, there's different reasons for the word dissolve there. And one is basically one of our first inspirations was the work of Russell Acuff, who basically talks about problem solving versus problem dissolving. He says, dissolving a problem is the only way to basically treat the problems. Because by solving a problem, you somehow push the problem from one area into another. So problem solving is designing new problems. By solving it here, you create another one somewhere else. Whereas it says dissolving the problem is only possible through design. You redesign the system that has that problem in a way that the problem disappears or dissolves. So this is one of the ideas that we had. And then if you look at the act of dissolving, or let's say solutio, as they say in alchemy, which is you bring something that has impurities in it and you dissolve those into a solvent, you know, something becomes more, let's say, pure, the act of contact with water and dissolution of something, this integrating some parts of something and then reassembling it 
together again in a way that those impurities are not there anymore. So there are different ways that we look at this. And in both cases, now we want to somehow dissolve this system of looking at design, especially a service design or human-centered design. You know, if you're making a machine, for instance, mm-hmm. right? It's a different design. But if you want to design a system of education, you cannot treat that design with the same attitude that you borrow from the mechanical world. A lot of our design, the ways of looking and design come from that mechanical world, you know, the product design or industrial design paradigm that now is present in areas that is not fitted to in particular. So I would say this is, this is why we came up with Design Dissolve. And in Design Dissolve, what we do is we create micro learning communities communities of 10 people in which we look at things in depth. Our courses are multidisciplinary. They're not only about one topic or a set of templates. We go deep into different topics. We look at mythology, we look at system science, we go to the philosophical foundations of systems thinking, to the mathematical foundations of systems thinking. We look at psychology, we look at facets of philosophy that is useful, different dimensions of social sciences. So we somehow look at design, not as a field, not as a discipline, but as an intersection of various disciplines where different disciplines meet. The intersection between thinking in systems, between arts, ability to see metaphors and to create metaphors, metaphoric thinking, the psychological part, and also dimensions from mathematics that could be useful in representation of complexity. So this is what we do. We're not reducing design into a set of tools and templates or procedures or process steps that are basically very counterintuitive because the word design should be associated with intuition and creativity. If you expect people to follow a number of process steps to achieve something, first do this, then do that, then do this, then where is the space for creativity? What is the conduit for intuition? You know, where is those sparks, right? The creative sparks or the richness that can be tapped into or should be tapped into in design. This is why we do what we do with design design. Yeah, I know. I get your point on that. And for sure, at universities and so on, you have the typical kind of process. But then in real life, it doesn't happen exactly as, you know, as you see it in the books or uh, at university, but more the way you're kind of describing, because you do invent your process in a certain way. But again, it depends on, you know, how who you're working with and the level of experience with how you know many projects you manage to deal with and so on but also the budget and and all of this come into play so you're doing you're designing courses for like professionals who right uh want to join and not only designers obviously from my no, understanding. No, no. for anyone uh, who wants to expand their way of thinking observation so it's basically in simple words what the outcome of our courses is is that it enables people to make more profound observation ask questions they wouldn't otherwise ask and then find meaningful ways or let's say profound ways of attributing meaning to those observations now if you're a designer then that helps in design 
if you're a coach, if you're a consultant, if you're working for an organization, it helps you basically deepen your knowledge. It helps you think about the way you think and develop better ways of learning. So it, it somehow the end result is that you learn, you develop the capacity to learn how to learn and to think and refine the ways you think, which are, in my opinion, the most important things that we should develop within us. And it's open to non-designers as well. I would say each of us, if you go to the root of the word design, which is staying with signify, designate, significance, is linked to creation of importance and meaning. Signification in French means meaning. So there is this dimension in design, which is about importance and meaning. So anyone who is doing some work somewhere is creating some importance and some meaning for himself and for others who are exposed to that work is a designer by definition. So that's why it's not limited only to service designers, to anyone who wants to take a fresh look at complexity and uncertainty and come out with a different attitude of confronting these facets of life. So you, you abandoned the engineering world, but you still apply no, it, right, in your inner yeah, world. But yeah. are you also working in education, in engineering also? Are you trying to redefine, if you want, the yeah. education in that room as well? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's so much that can be done when it comes to education, of how we learn things, starting from school and then continuing onwards. One thing, for instance, engineers should be trained more about apart from the human dimension which is very important and they're not exposed to is seeing interconnectivity ability to see patterns because they're very good specialists you know but more and more we need people who sort of have t-shaped skills they can connect a variety of different things at the same time know one of them pretty well specializing one of them so we need people who can also specialize a little bit in generalization. They, they learn how to generalize things and to take lessons from one field applied to the other. So these are the things that I think we need to put a bit of a more emphasis because right now what's happening is a hyper-specialization in various fields and people are somehow not paying enough attention to the aspect of generalizing things or connection seeking or connecting things that are seemingly different, you know, and distant, creating a, a way of basically running a thread across these disparate elements in a meaningful way. So these are the things that engineers need to embrace because sooner or later, a lot of engineering tasks can also be rendered by, by the algorithms or the software. But what is left there is seeking these connections, seeing those tasks from a broader perspective. I like the way you say uh, we need uh, to specialize in generalization. <laughs> That's brilliant. So where can we find you on design, uh, dissolve.design? And where else, if anyone wants to get yeah, it? Design.dissolve. You can look me up on the internet, Arash Golnam. I have a website, it's arash.ch. That's, you can also look up and you can connect on LinkedIn. I share my ideas every now and then on LinkedIn. You can also hear about our courses, our webinars. We'll be having a webinar in mid-October. I don't know when this is going to come out. Yeah, probably after. <laughs> so. After. So. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'll be posting a link. Yeah, yeah, I'll you, be posting you, all the links. 
you can actually go to our website because we always record our webinars and you can watch them in retrospect as well. So that wouldn't be a problem. Cool. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Anything you would like to add? No, that would be it. It was fun having this conversation. I hope it was useful for your audience and the people who listen to it. And if you would like to continue this conversation, those uh, who are the audience to this podcast, you're welcome to join us for some of our courses that we have, because in our courses, we don't do any lectures. The lectures are all recorded. We actually do flipped classrooms. So each session of the course turns into a very rich space for meaningful conversations amongst the participants. It keeps on attracting amazing individuals and professionals. You know, I know how this is happening, but now we are finished at our ninth month of starting Design Dissolve. And we are around 70, 80, you know, professionals who have taken our courses from 20 different countries in the world, 70, 80 people from 20 different countries in the world and from all the continents. So we have people who are coaches, who are independents, and we have people who work for big corporations like Facebook, like Google, IBM, and governmental sector, the NGOs. So there is a very nice variety of people who are there or on board with us. And so that's a place for exchanges, for meaningful conversations, and for learning together. Cool. Thank you so much. This is the end of this really insightful episode with Arash Golnam. Really enjoyed it. Had to keep the conversation in just under an hour, actually, because we went into some deep thoughts and reflection where Arash took us through his thoughts through his journey from being an engineer to becoming a psychoanalyst, where he encountered his inner world. We spoke about the four functions that we have, thinking, sensation, feeling, and intuition, and kind of wrapped up with transaction and the meaning of problem solving. So thank you very much for listening. You are listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matloub. To support the show, please subscribe leave a review and share it with anyone who could benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation, join the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.